Hello, and welcome to Uplift, a podcast about the transformative power of design from architecture and design firm NBBJ. I'm your host, Dr. Hina Santry. Each week, we chat with people from all over the healthcare continuum who have been deeply affected by the built environment. On today's episode, extreme weather events are on the rise due to climate change. These incidents, up threefold in the last 30 years, combined with pandemics and other emergencies, put a spotlight on the need to design healthcare infrastructure to be resilient. Yet, as with any challenge, there is also opportunity. Lessons learned from recent disasters showcase how resiliency features can benefit healthcare systems, not just during a human or weather-caused event, but every day of the year. These features include hardened infrastructure, robust surge capacity, access to daylight, and staff amenities. To discuss this topic today, I am joined by Diana Jacob, Chief Operating Officer, and Dan Collins, Facility Manager at the New York City Health and Hospital Corporation's Coney Island Hospital, which was recently renamed to South Brooklyn Health. Also joining me today is my NBBJ colleague, John Flanagan. John and I are working closely with Diana and Dan on the Ruth Bader Ginsburg Hospital, which is part of a major campus renovation funded by FEMA to demolish, replace, and repair buildings flooded by Superstorm Sandy in 2012. Let's dive in. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I'm really excited to talk about this topic. Diana, tell us about what you do. Sure. I'm the Chief Operating Officer for South Brooklyn Health. My overall role is hospital operations, and I joined South Brooklyn Health in March of 2020, just in time for the global pandemic, which was quite an experience. Dan, can you briefly introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do at New York City Health and Hospitals and South Brooklyn Health? Sure. I've been here for about a little over 20 years, been working in engineering, construction, capital improvements, and currently working on managing the FEMA mitigation project. And John, uh, how about you? Tell us a little bit about your role at NBBJ. I'm a project architect, and I've been an architect working on projects in the United States and Europe and Asia for over 30 years. So each one of you lived through the devastating impact of Hurricane Sandy on the hospitals where you're working at the time. And Diana, of course, every New Yorker has a memory of Superstorm Sandy. You mentioned in your introduction that you actually joined the South Brooklyn Health System more recently than that. But you were working at a different New York City hospital when the storm hit. What was it like for you at the time in your role there? I was working at another New York City hospital that also happened to be on the flood zone one during that period. And it was a very vivid memory and experience because they also had to evacuate eventually. And so my capacity at the time was really in medical school administration there, but I did assist with the evacuation efforts, but then quickly turned my focus to really assessing our educational facilities and the damage to those facilities, as well as addressing the needs of the medical students and residents. Coney Island was one of the hardest hit areas in New York City after Superstorm Sandy in 2012. Why was this catastrophic weather event particularly dire for this hospital and its surrounding community? Well, Sandy's storm surge uh, devastated Coney Island, Brighton Beach, Manhattan Beach were all flooded by the storm. Uh, They lost power, phone service, there was no public transportation. All of the local businesses, pharmacies, doctor's office, all were shuttered for weeks at a time. You know, our hospital was affected. The entire first floor space was lost to the surge. Our ED, elevators, our main computer room, switch gear that served good portions of the building were all rendered inoperable. And, you know, even during the storm, the community looked to the hospital as a safe haven. And it was, we thought, our job really to 
do as much as we could to get back as soon as we could to offer those services that were wiped out by the storm to our community. Designing for resiliency, of course, is a response to our changing world and the changes that we face, whether it's climate or other catastrophic events like a global pandemic. I was hoping, John, that you could you know, help define for us what resiliency or resiliency in healthcare more specifically means to you. It's a complicated subject, especially given climate change and the planning buildings for a future that we're not quite sure of. But in general, there's really four key aspects to building resilience. And that's the robustness of the building, the ability to maintain critical functions, the building structure, the design of the infrastructure, and redundancy. Resourcefulness, that's really the ability to plan and manage for a crisis, identifying courses of action, supply chain issues, management, and basically mitigating the damage and have the right people with the right sources in the right places to manage the the crisis. John, earlier we talked about your work at the Ruth Bader Ginsburg Hospital. It's replacing the facility that Dan described, which was destroyed by Hurricane Sandy. Can you tell us a little bit about the resiliency features of this hospital to protect it from future catastrophic weather events and flooding? Well, resiliency for this hospital in particular is the need to prepare for a major storm event and then be able to evacuate the hospital and then get the hospital back up and running as quickly as possible after the event passes. So what we've incorporated into this project are methodologies to protect all of the critical infrastructure as well as uh, the critical spaces using various types of flood control measures, elevating crucial electrical and mechanical systems, and hardening critical core areas that could be damaged, like elevator cores or machine rooms that do have to be on the lowest level of this building. Designing for resiliency, of course, can take different forms. It's not just about planning for weather events, but also questions of capacity and operational efficiency. You want to make sure that everyone can receive care, no matter what the circumstances. Diana, in your current role, you oversee operations for the entire facility. So what are some of the features of this new publicly funded hospital that you anticipate will provide greater operational efficiency and equitable care for your staff and your patients? Sure. There's so many. I mean, I'll take our our ED. I mean, John alluded to this um, earlier about just capacity, right? So straight up, we can handle so much more capacity than we are able to in our existing ED. Second, I would say is um, we have 80 med surge single bedded rooms. And the building that we're actually moving inpatient from actually has four to six bedded rooms right now. So talk about, you know, equity and upgrade for our patients. We have been struggling with that for a very long time here. And that that's going to be a real shift, right? This beautiful new facility where it actually doesn't matter, right, what your insurance is or where you come from or what language you speak, you know, you're going to get the same physical plant, improved experience, um, as well as the same care experience, right, as, as anyone else in the private sector, for example. And then the third, I would say, is the behavioral health improvement, right? And so that building is, you know, late 1800, early 1900s building where literally when it rains, there's leaks all over the building. And so they're going to be going from a very old plant to the top two floors of this beautiful new building with spectacular views of 
Brooklyn and New York City, an outdoor space that they don't have today, and a whole lot of other amenities that are therapeutic you know, or that add to the healing process for that population. And this is our most vulnerable population that we're dealing with. If I could add to that, Hina, and Dan and I have talked about this several times as we walk the building, is the quality of light that we're able to achieve and the positive impact that's going to have on the healing for all patients, for the patients in the bedrooms and the behavioral health patients, but even in the ED, patients either have, they're in a space that has sunlight coming in from above their heads or just be able to see the sky or have visual access to daylight. Even walking down a corridor, most all corridors on the bed tower, when you look down the corridor, you see daylight, you see sky, you see views. And I just don't think we can underestimate the positive impact that we'll have on the staff and on the patients and on the families. I'm glad this is a podcast and not something that has video because I think everyone would see me tearing up. What makes you hopeful about this new facility? What makes me hopeful is really the learning agility and adaptiveness that we saw across our workforce during the pandemic. And it really changed all of us, right? It really changed the way we think, the way we behave, the way we view sort of standard operations and whether it works in those settings and not. And the flexibility of sort of throwing out our protocols and saying we're going to have to develop new ones on the fly. And it's really important, right? It's important to recognize that we're human beings, that often we move through the world unconsciously. And when we're in moments like this is when we really show our capabilities, right? And we saw that in this setting. We saw that with Hurricane Sandy. And for me, there's a lot of hope in that. And Dan, how about you? What makes you hopeful as you think about this new building? The upgrades, the campus is you know much more aesthetically pleasing the building and the services in there the modernization puts us in a better position to serve the community that surrounds us and and we would not have been able to do that without this you know without the tragic event letting us get the money to do this so some good comes out of it john it's interesting this is a facility that was born of sandy and built during covid and to see what we as a team, the builder, the architect, the client, the government, this is such a positive facility that's funded by all of us. And it will serve all of this community. And the building itself is a testament to the hard work of so many people. Yeah, it's a space that inspires. It's inspiring to to be in that space and continue to have that same mission that you've always had really in surroundings that are, are, are very different. Yeah, it's opened up a lot of opportunities that we just didn't have before. So design and construction is a multifaceted process to begin with, but then rebuilding after a disaster of any sort is ever more complicated. Um, and certainly funding, when there may not have been a plan in place to build a new hospital or do a basement renovation, is complicated. You know, Diana, can you tell us a little bit about just funding in general and why funding from a source like FEMA is so important in these cases? It's so important, um, in particular for safety nest hospitals like ours. Uh, FEMA funding is vital. We are one of 11 hospitals in the largest public health system in the country. Uh, we are heavily reliant on city, state, and federal funding 
to serve the needs of our communities. Um, and so our sources of capital funding are limited. It's the city uh, and its elected officials. And that barely covers the maintenance, replacements, and repairs that we have at a baseline. Um, so this new hospital building was nearly a billion-dollar project. And without that federal support, our ability to serve this community would be greatly at risk. And Dan, as someone who's been deeply familiar with the various buildings on campus before the hurricane hit and heavily involved in this new project, what are some of the improvements that have been made possible by this funding? Um, and what are some, you know, if you would have even been able to plan this unrelated to Sandy, that, that might not have come to be? The building itself. I mean, we... Uh our campus prior to Sandy was a 2005 building with housing our inpatients and a 1954 building that had the rest of the services in it, the ED, ORs. That building was built at a different age and did not meet current codes and standards. So we were able to take our ED, our OR, the radiology, good number of our med surge beds and our behavioral health inpatient and outpatient services and upgrade them because of the funding. And one of the stipulations that FEMA made was a one-to-one replacement in terms of clinical capacity. Can you talk a little bit, Dan, from your perspective about the challenges of such a stipulation? So the the, the one-to-one stipulation you know, didn't allow for a programmatic needs analysis or the development of any new programs with this design since we had to match what was here prior to the to the storm but the you know the design with it meeting current codes and how it was laid out with the adjacencies and the building in the flexibility for future growth and allowing for more efficient operation really did make a significant difference in how we will be able to operate Diana, from your perspective, do you feel like when the new hospital opens, there'll be a good match between the availability of uh, care that's being offered versus the demand in the community? Yeah, I mean, I think for the last couple of years, we've been working hard at really understanding our community and the needs of our community and, and leveraging that insight to be able to program, right? And so not only have we been working on um, standing up the new hospital and opening, but we've also been working on our overall programming, right? And over the course of the next couple of years, what programs do we need to grow and develop to be able to serve the needs of our community? Diana, can you tell us about how this project has opened up the uh, your ability to offer new opportunities and benefits for your staff? Yes. Yeah, so as soon as we really got a handle on um, the campus transition plan um, and how we're actually going to move and who we're going to move, we started the initiative of master planning for the entire campus, right? So we have three buildings and one of those buildings will be demolished and the other building will be largely reprogrammed because a lot of the services that were previously hospital-based or inpatient are going to move into the new building. That leaves us with a lot of space opportunity and we're having a whole lot of conversations with our staff and our leaders to understand the needs, understand our community needs and then determine how we reorganize that space. So staff employee wellness has been a high priority for us. What kinds of spaces do we need, you know, to ensure that our employees have 
places to have lunches and breaks, places to have respite, right, during their time off, where they can actually have maybe meditative space, uh, a gym, you know, we're exploring a lot of options there. The other area we're looking at is really education and learning, and how do we think about creating an education and learning center to support the improvements that we're making in patient care. Well, thank you, everyone. This has really been a remarkable conversation, and it's really been thrilling for me to get to see the building unfold and be a part of the future occupancy of this building as part of the transition team. So I'd like to thank everyone for tuning into this episode of Uplift. Special thanks today to our guests, Diana Jacob and Dan Collins. For more information about this project, you can visit our website at nbbj.com. If you like what you heard, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and spread the word. We'll speak to you on the next episode. Thank you.